All right, good morning and happy Mother's Day to those out there. I was a little, um, a little ashamed this morning in that it wasn't until I got to church that somebody else came up to my wife and told her happy Mother's Day. When I looked at her, I was like, oh, I forgot to tell you happy Mother's Day this morning. So anyway, happy Mother's Day to the rest of you out there and grateful for this opportunity uh, to finish up our study here in 2 Corinthians by no means a closure of this section. And as you'll see, Paul continues to go on to give us um, what a picture, a tapestry of authentic New Covenant ministry looks like. But if you would go ahead and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7 through 18. Again, I'm grateful um, to Lance, to Arnold, to everybody that have allowed me in these last few weeks to come and, and to teach you and for your patience and endurance with me through this time. Um, and so just grateful again for this opportunity. So I'm going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We're studying verses 7 through 18 today. So we are in for a marathon. Verses 7 through 18. Word of God says this, But if the ministry of death and letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory." For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not like Moses who used to put a, a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened for until this very day at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. The title of our message today is Surpassing Glory surpassing glory. With the rise of the informational age, we have witnessed in our own lifetimes a, a litany of products that have become outdated or even obsolete. Uh, the other day, I was riding home with my son from here to church, and we were going back home, and we have a, in our car a little navigational system, and there's a little blue dot that he likes to track that shows where our car is and where our car is going, and he asked the question, Dad, what is that? What is a GPS? What's a navigational system? Well, I told him, you know, back, back in the old days, right? Back in the old days, there was these things that were like paper and they were called maps and, and you would fold them up and you would unfold them and, and they would have roads on them and you would have to try to figure out where you're going and say, oh, I got to get to this street and this street and all that. And I told him, 
you know, now that we're in this tech-savvy culture, you know, we have GPS. We have Siri who tells us what to do. And so now, son, we have this navigational system that we use to help us whenever we need to get somewhere. And so what we see then is that even in our day, even in our culture, all around us, we're seeing that the old is being replaced with the new. Now, some of y'all may still like maps, and that's great. Y'all may continue to use them. But as we come here to our passage, we see that the same idea, the same focus that Paul is talking about here, that the same is true for the ministries of the old and new covenants. The light of glory which emanated from the ministry of Moses and the old has now faded away. Uh, that is, it's been set aside for the surpassing brilliance of the glory found in the new. And with this glorious hope, believer, you can go forth, Paul tells us, you can go forth in your ministry of the Spirit boldly. As we've been looking at and walking through these verses, we've been studying the last few weeks, we've discovered that Paul is defending the authenticity of his ministry, right? His defense of his conduct. And while his opponents had claimed superiority in ministry, Paul shows us, he reveals to us what true, authentic ministry looks like. And as we sit back to learn from Paul's defense here, we can visualize this defense as a, a tapestry of sorts. That as, pile, as Paul is piling upon reason after reason, defense after defense, he is in a way, ultimately weaving for believers several patterns which come together to form a beautiful tapestry of authentic ministry. We saw that first, that authentic new covenant ministry abounds in triumph. And that was verses 14 through 16. And the second pattern we looked at was that authentic new covenant ministry requires divine enablements. And we saw that in verses 16 through chapter 3, verse Six. And specifically what we looked at last week was really to define what serving in this greater calling of the new covenant looked like. We saw that the new covenant was the culminating piece in God's redemptive puzzle. And now Paul is going to move on in verses 7 through 18. He has made a, a grand statement in verse 6 to say that the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And so Paul then is going to substantiate this statement to further this claim. He's going to show why the new covenant is greater and how it authenticates his ministry. In order to accomplish his goal, uh, Paul is going to give us, if you would, a, an, a, an apostolic commentary, a, an apostolic exposition, if you would, of Exodus chapter 34, verses 29 through 35. And what he's going to show from Exodus, and as he compares it to his life and his ministry in his day, he's going to show us that it's precisely now because the ministry that he serves in has greater glory than that which accompanied Moses, that he says this then authenticates him as a herald of the gospel. And it's this hope then that Paul is going to resolutely stand firm in and derive his boldness from so as we think then as the theme of what these verses show us, how can we think of it? What can we glean from Paul's tapestry, if you would, in these verses? 
It would be this, Christians are to serve in the ministry of the new covenant today with boldness. We're to serve with boldness. Why? Because we have hope. We have hope and the surpassing glory of the Spirit's transforming power. So what does the surpassing glory of the new covenant look like? How does it surpass? What does boldness look like? Paul shows us, he answers these questions by weaving for us two more patterns, two more patterns of this authentic new covenant ministry. We see that authentic new covenant ministry contains surpassing glory in verses three through 11, and that authentic new covenant ministry communicates with greater boldness in verses 12 through 18. So let's start then with the third pattern that Paul gives us here. That's authentic new covenant ministry contains surpassing glory. In typical Pauline fashion, the apostle gives us his argument first before transitioning to the application. So we're gonna see in verses seven through 11, Paul's argument. And then in verses 12 through 18, the application of his argument that he has just given. And the flow of his logic kind of works like this in verses seven through 11. He unfolds his argument in three lesser to, to greaters, three lesser to greater arguments. And you can see that by the conditional conjunction, if. You look at verse seven and you look at verse nine and verse 11, he starts each sentence with that word, if. If the old covenant ministry was attained with glory, then how much more so is the ministry of the new covenant? So with this idea then of three arguments, three lesser to greater arguments, let's look at the first argument. And it's this, that the glory of the new covenant surpasses the glory of the old because it is a ministry of the Spirit. It is a ministry of the Spirit. And what we're gonna see is that Paul's gonna start off with the argument from lesser first in verse seven. He says, but if the ministry of death and letters engraved on stones came with glory. The word there for if, as I just said, it's a, marks a conditional sentence. And the way it works is that Paul's assuming the truth. The way that his argument works here is that he's gonna assume the first part of the, of the sentence to show how much more so the second part of the sentence. In other words, Paul's point is this, is he says, if the ministry of death came with glory, and we know that it came with glory, right? Right is what he's trying to get at. If it's come with glory, then, and you know it's come with glory, then how much more so that which comes next? So Paul then is showing that the ministry of the Spirit also has come with glory. And notice there in verse seven, he says that this is the ministry of death, right? Paul isn't necessarily comparing the law versus the gospel here, all right? His focus is rather the, the ministry, the service that, one did under the law as compared to the ministry, the service that one does under the spirit. That is, this is not a, an argument on two different means of salvation, one versus law, one versus faith, but rather on two different types of ministry, one apart from the spirit and one in the power of the spirit. So he says that the ministry apart from the spirit of God, that is the ministry of the letter, as we see in verse six, 
is in verse seven, a ministry of death. It's a ministry which produces death. Now for Paul, that was a controversial statement. Because for the Jew, the the Torah, the law of God, the Pentateuch was equated with life. As one rabbi expresses it, quote, while Israel stood below engraving idols to provoke their creator to anger, God sat on high engraving tablets, which would give them life. That was the sentiment of the Jewish mindset that the law itself brought life. That's the exact statement that Jesus rebuked in John chapter five, verse 39. We know there that Jesus says this to the the Pharisees. He says, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but it is they that testify about me. Uh, While the Jews thought that they were to find life in the ministry of the letter itself, Jesus reveals that the purpose of the Old Testament scriptures are to point people to him because only in him is eternal life. We can see that the ministry uh, of the letter was death from the very get-go, right? As you look throughout the Old Testament scriptures that even from the first generation of Israelites that were under the ministry of the law, what happened to them? They all died. Only Joshua and Caleb were accepted. We see as we continue to go on that the overwhelming majority of Old Testament Israel were spiritually unresponsive to God and thus dead as the prophets continue to proclaim The people were kicked out of the land, leading to death at the hand of pagan nations. And we see that their death is most revealed in the murdering of the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross. The ministry of the letter is a ministry producing death. Both a living death, because those under it are incapable of obeying what it commanded, and an eternal death because of the sentence of judgment for those who disobey it. So having said that then, maybe you're wondering, well, how could anything like that come with glory? How how does something like that, producing death, then come with glory? Paul says, oh, it does, right? Because the law itself is holy, righteous, and good. The law itself reflects God's character, it reflects his nature, and so it did, in fact, come with glory. The reference that Paul is alluding here is Exodus 34. Go ahead and turn there with me to Exodus 34, verse 29. I wish I had time to really unpack the the background here. Uh, However, there's a guy named Tom Pennington that just did a whole sermon series on Exodus 32 through 33. He has a really good book. Maybe Lance uh, could show you. I think it's God's sermon on his name, something like that. Um, but you can go and you can listen to those messages. You could get that book at our bookstore. I get no commission for that whatsoever, but uh, to find out more of the background. Simply put, you can see this, that, that God having shown Moses the goodness of his divine glory, he has explained to Moses his ways. He has renewed the covenant. Then Moses then having these tablets with the renewed covenant comes down from the mountain. And then verse 29, it says this, It came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hands as he was coming down from the mountain that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him. 
So we see here that Moses is coming down from the mountain and his face is is shining brilliantly. That the the glory of God, the light of, of the glory of God is radiating from his face because as it says there that Moses had beheld, he had spoken with God there on the mountaintop. In fact, the glory was such a stunning display, look at verse 30, that the people drew away in utter terror. It says, so when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. All right, much like the disciples who were, uh, excuse me, much like the disciples who became terrified by Jesus's transfiguration, we see in Mark chapter nine, as Jesus was on the mountaintop and his face was transfigured and the light of the glory of God was shining forth from him. It says there that the disciples became terrified. They became utterly afraid. Same thing here we see with Aaron and the sons of Israel. But after their initial terror, we see that Moses calls the people back to himself in verse 31. And then in verse 32, in verse 33, Moses speaks to them all that God had commanded. He reveals to them that God has indeed shown his glory. God has explained his ways and God has renewed the covenant. God graciously has done this. So with that background, turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter three. Paul is then going to pick up on this reference and he's going to start providing his own commentary, his own exposition of what is happening in Exodus 34. And I'll be honest with you, uh, many scholars, many commentators, pastors, theologians all note that the next verses are some of the most difficult in all of Paul's literature. In fact, many would say this is the Mount Everest of interpretation when it comes to understanding what Paul is saying throughout all of his letters. So I go forth the best that I can to try to, to lay before you what exactly Paul is saying here. But in verse seven, Paul then goes on to say, here's the result of what happened when Moses came down with the glory shining from his face. It says, Verse seven, so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face. Literally, they were not able to look at his face. That word therefore, look intently, it speaks of fixing your eyes upon something, of gazing upon something. Even better, it speaks of beholding something that the people were not able to behold the glory of God that shone from Moses's face for any length of time. And of course, the question is, well, why? Well, why could they not look upon this glory? And there's numerous different uh, answers that are given. The, the answer I think that works best is in verse 13. The reason why is, is actually pretty simple. It's because Moses put a veil over his face. Why were they not able to look intently at the glory of God? Well, it's because Moses put a veil. He covered it up. He did not allow the people to see. And we'll look at that more when we get to verse 13. And so then uh, Paul is saying, so here is this old covenant ministry shown by the the glory on Moses' face. It came with glory. But then he notes there at the end of verse seven, fading as it was, fading as it was. What does Paul mean by fading? What, What does he have going on here? Again, this is highly debated. You know, some have argued that this refers to a gradual fading. 
such as a, a flashlight running out of light because of low battery power. However, the, the weight of, of lexical evidence suggests that the, the better way to understand this is that the glory of Moses' face was fading. That is, it was being snuffed out, it was being obscured by the veil. And that's what I was just referring to in verse 13. That is, the glory was being rendered ineffective, inoperative. That's what Paul's trying to get out here is that the veiled glory of Moses' face serves as a picture. Serves as a picture of old covenant ministry as one which is being rendered obsolete. One that's being set aside one that is temporary, even from the get-go. This ministry was temporary. Just as light bulbs, right? Light bulbs have rendered candles mostly obsolete for lighting up your house, and of course, until you have big storms that come through and your electricity goes out and you need candles. But just as a light bulb has set candles aside, rendering them obsolete, causing them to fade away from being used, in our homes to light up our house, so too the glory of the ministry of the Spirit has caused the veiled glory of the old to be set aside. So that is Paul's argument from the lesser. If this temporary ministry that produced death had glory, here's the greater argument, how much more so then is the ministry of the Spirit? Look at verse eight. He says in verse eight, how will the ministry of the spirit fail to be even more with glory, right? If that which produced death comes with glory, how much more so this? And you know, at this point, you might kind of wonder why, why doesn't he say ministry of life? That kind of parallel more, right? Ministry of death, ministry of life. He doesn't say that. He says ministry of the spirit. Why does he say the ministry of the spirit? Well, the reason why, as I argued last week, is because the focus the primary focus of the new covenant is upon the spirit of God, that Paul's trying to draw our attention to the Holy Spirit, the one who is at the focus of, the, the center point of this ministry, that it is he who is at work here. It is he who is imparting life. It is he who is regenerating the heart. It is he who is indwelling the believer to produce obedience in them. It is he First and foremost, then, it is the ministry of the Spirit. So Paul makes no doubts about it, right? If that which came apart from the Spirit has glory, how much more so that which comes in the power of the Spirit has glory. His second argument, then, is that the glory of the new covenant surpasses that of the old because is a ministry of righteousness. It is a ministry of righteousness, verses nine through 10. Again, he begins with the argument from the lesser in verse 9a. We see that Paul says there, for if the ministry of condemnation has glory, not only does the ministry which produced death come with glory, but also the ministry which produces condemnation have glory. Again, this is quite opposite from Jewish thinking. They thought of the law as, quote, made for the sake of righteousness to aid the quest for virtue and the perfecting of character. Jews saw the law as something making us righteous. Paul reveals, on the other hand, that the law can only condemn. 
Condemnation refers to the judicial verdict involving a legal penalty. That is, all under, excuse me, all the ministry under the law could do, all it could accomplish was to sentence those under it to death. We see that Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26 says, Cursed, cursed is he who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. James chapter two, verse 10 confirms that if you break even one point of the law, you're guilty for it all. Paul says elsewhere in Romans chapter four, verse 15, that the law brings wrath. So then even this ministry, which brought with it a dreadful sentence of judgment, of condemnation, even it still has glory. Well, that brings them to his argument from the greater. If that which condemns has glory, how much more so that which produces righteousness. He says in verse nine, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. When Paul uses the word righteousness here, he has the idea of imputed righteousness. Uh, the forensic declaration of justification, as theologians might call it. He's gonna go on to talk about this more in a couple of chapters in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, where he explains that, that Christ, the one who knew no sin, went to the cross, right? He went to the cross there bearing our sins in his body on the tree, that there on the cross our record of debt was nailed to him, and thus the great exchange happened, all right? The, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, Christ died in our place. Christ suffered our penalty. Christ received our punishment. And in exchange, we receive his perfect righteousness. Our credit score has come now to a perfect righteousness before God. And so then Paul is going to make that point later. And we see it here that this ministry under the spirit of God is one which produces righteousness. And before we move on let me just appeal to you for those who are seeking to find their own righteousness in your own works. Uh, those who are trying to, to climb the ladder, if you would, of your own self-righteousness, trying to, to work your way to God. Paul says here, it will only lead in your death. It will only end in your condemnation. Rather, what you need to do is repent, turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, look for his perfect righteousness alone. Look for his perfect justification alone. Look toward his life alone. And this ministry under the spirit will indeed pardon, justify, and give you life today. Paul continues there in his argument it's a different shade of the argument in verses in the rest of nine and 10 compared to that in verse eight. In verse eight, he gives the indisputable fact that the ministry of the spirit does have glory. In verses nine and 10, he kind of takes it up a notch. Not just does it have glory, but it has surpassing glory. Look there at the end of verse nine. He says, much more, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. The word therefore abound means that which overflows, right? The, the light shining forth from the ministry of the spirit much more abounds, overflows 
and glory as that compared to the old. Right, these are not equal wattages of light. We're not equating apples to apples here. No, rather the wattage of the new covenant ministry is brighter than that of the old. How does it do that? Well, verse 10, he kind of unpacks what this looks like more, what abounding in glory looks like. He says, verse 10, for indeed what had glory, in this case, has no glory. The old covenant as symbolized by the light emanating from the face of Moses, and indeed it did have glory. But in this case, as it's compared to the light shining forth from the, the ministry of the Spirit, now it, it has no glory. And why does it have no glory? Did they just stop shining? Did the, the glory just disappear? Did the, the light just suddenly lose its ability to, to shine? Paul says no. That's not how we are to think of it. Rather, the old still has glory, but now it has come to have no glory because of a new light that is far greater and far more surpassing. It overflows, it abounds. The word there for surpass means to, to exceed on a point of scale, to, to go beyond, to, to outdo so we can think of it like this, that the glory of the old has come to have no glory in the same way of a flashlight comes to have no glory. If you were to take it outside on a clear summer day, the, the light on the flashlight is still on, but while you're in the dark room, you can see, but when you take it out, there is a glory in the sun, a light of the sun that finds shines far brighter and is far surpassing that of the flashlight, that it looks as if the flashlight no longer has any light. And for what Paul's saying then is that the light of new covenant ministry through the spirit radiating, excuse me, radiates a surpassing degree of glory from the face of Jesus Christ, which far exceeds the light of glory shining from the face of Moses. A.T. Robertson, a Greek scholar, said it like this, quote, Christ, as the, the sun, S-U-N, as the sun of righteousness, has thrown Moses in the shade. That brings us to our last argument. It is a ministry which remains. It's a ministry which remains. The glory of the new covenant surpasses the old because it remains Again, we begin with the argument from the lesser there in verse 11. He says, for if that which fades away was with glory. Here, Paul's focused on the permanence of these ministries. The, the old is one which fades away, which again, I've noted earlier, that is, it's being set aside. It's becoming obsolete. It's being rendered inoperative, ineffective. It's temporary. And so if, if that, which was just temporary, which was to be here for a moment had glory, how much more so that which remains. Again, this is a hard pill to swallow for any self-respecting Jew. Right, they pictured the law as, quote, an internal lamp, a lamp that will abide forever. And as one Jewish source put it, the law, however, does not perish, but remains in its glory. Scripture reveals something totally contrary to that. Right, Galatians chapter three, verses 24 through 25 teaches us that the law is, 
It's a tutor. It's a tutor to, to bring us to Christ. However, once Christ came, once justification by faith came, what happened to the tutor? He is needed no more. He has now been set aside. He has faded away. The ministry of the old is now no longer needed because of the surpassing permanent glory of that which remains. So then that brings us to the argument from the greater there in verse 11. He says, much more that which remains is in glory. The word for remains is a word we've come to know quite well in 1 John. It means the word that abides, that which remains, that which continues on, that which perseveres. So Paul's point is that the spirit of the new is, uh, in the new covenant is one that is permanent. The glory of this new covenant ministry will persevere all the way into eternity. This then is the surpassing glory. The surpassing glory of the new covenant ministry of the spirit. It's a ministry that doesn't produce death, but life. A ministry that doesn't produce condemnation, but righteousness. A ministry that doesn't perish, but remains forever. It is a ministry of the spirit. And if you stand here in Christ today, this is your ministry. This is what you are a part of. You are a part of surpassing glory of the Spirit of God. How do we apply such marvelous truths to our life? How can we as believers grab a hold of these theological realities and then live them out in our own life? Well, thankfully, Paul doesn't leave us in the dark here, right? But he reveals the answer for us in verses 12 through 18. He gives us and weaves for us a fourth pattern. A fourth pattern here is that authentic new covenant ministry communicates with greater boldness. It communicates with greater boldness. The overarching idea is found in verse 12. He says, we use great boldness in our speech. The main application that Paul takes away, that he wants us to take away here, is that of boldness, right? Not just boldness, but what does he say in verse 12? Of great boldness. The word for boldness means to, to speak confidently, uh, to speak openly about something, that you don't obscure, you don't conceal, you don't hide the gospel, but rather you speak boldly about the gospel. It's often used in the face of persecution, or affliction, when, the, when Peter and John were first persecuted on account of preaching the gospel in Acts chapter four, what did the church pray for? They prayed for boldness. They prayed for boldness and the Lord answered their prayer. When Paul was behind prison doors, he asked the Ephesian church to pray that he might have boldness to keep preaching the gospel. But on the other hand, as we see in John chapter 7, verse 13, that there were many Jews, there were many Jews in Jesus' day who would not speak openly, who would not speak boldly about Jesus. Why? Because they feared their religious leaders. Paul tells us then that the ministry of the Spirit has a greater glory. And if it has a greater glory, then ministers of this ministry have a greater boldness. Paul's gonna go on. He's gonna detail four insights of this boldness. The first insight is the cause. 
okay, Paul, we have this greater boldness, but, but how? What, what causes us? What, what grounds us then in this boldness? Well, he says right there in verse 12, he says, therefore, having such a hope, having such a hope. His boldness doesn't stem from his own knowledge. It doesn't stem from his own talents or his own abilities, but rather the power of the spirit to produce life in its hearers. That is where Paul grounds his hope. He says, because we serve in a ministry producing life, because we serve in a ministry producing righteousness, because we serve in a ministry that is eternal, because we serve in a ministry that has and enjoys the power of the Spirit of God, therefore I preach boldly. He realizes that as he goes forth as the aroma of Christ in every place at all times, preaching to valley of dry bones, he has hope that the spirit who raised Christ from the dead is the spirit who can raise those whom he preaches to. This is his hope. This is his strength. This is his trust. It's to be our strength and hope as well. It is the cause of our boldness. He goes on, second detail is the context. The context of our boldness. When we're talking about boldness, what, what does Paul mean? Well, what is he talking about? Are we just bold in, in life? Well, he kind of flushes it out. He says that we use great boldness in our speech. All right, the ministry of the gospel is, it's not a silent ministry. Those who say preach the gospel and when necessary use words have never read the ministry of the Apostle Paul, right? Of course, our lives, they are a, a living witness. They bear testimony. But scripture says that we must open up our mouth and speak. We must go forth with great boldness. And so we preach, right? We, we proclaim, we share the gospel boldly. We share it with our kids. We, we share it with our grandkids. We share it with our neighbors. We proclaim it to our coworkers. We, we preach it to, to even those here within the church. We preach it to even those that we might meet in the grocery store or sitting next to on the plane or wherever we might go. Paul says we are to preach the gospel. And as we go forth to preach the gospel, we do it boldly. And when the, the fear of man monster attempts to, to paralyze your tongue, causing it to stick to the roof of your mouth as it likes so often to do, what do you do? You, you go back to the hope. You go back to the hope of verses seven through 11 and you preach the truth of the gospel to your fearful soul to fight off cowardice and to preach Christ boldly. We come next to the contrast the contrast of our boldness in verses 13 through 14. He says that we are not like Moses. What does he mean here that we are to, to not minister like Moses? The picture he's trying to paint is that our ministry is to be bold and that we, we speak unveiled. We speak with unmasked faces. That there, there's no hiddenness in our ministry. We don't cover up the glory of God emanating from the gospel of Jesus Christ and mask the beauty of divine grace. No, rather, we show it off to the world. Right? We, we shout it from the mountaintops. The ministry on, of Moses, on the other hand, Paul reveals was not bold, but rather it was one that was veiled. It was not open, if you would. Not to say that Moses wasn't bold, but that Moses 
wore a, a veil over his face. He explains that as he goes on in verse 13. He says, we're not like, Vo- like Moses. Well, how? Well, because Moses used to put a, a veil over his face. Turn back to Exodus 34. Exodus 34, verse 33. Again, as Moses is coming down, he has a light shining, radiating forth from his face. The, the people see, they draw away in utter terror, but then he brings them back. As he brings them back, he then relays to them everything that God has commanded. And then what do we see? What happened at the end of when Moses had uh, spoken to him? It says in verse 33, when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Put a veil over his face. You may wonder, like, why did Moses put a veil over his face? What's going on here? Well, Exodus 34 doesn't really give us a whole lot of details. It would seem that there's something about this light emanating from the face of Moses. It's because of the glory that Moses has to veil his face. But we're not giving even any more details here in this passage. Well, Paul gives us his own commentary, his own exposition back in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul goes on to say, here's Moses' purpose for doing that in verse 13. He says, we're not like Moses. He used to put a veil over his face. Why? What was his purpose? So that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. So then Moses, having delivered the divine message, puts his veil over his face. And Paul says the reason why is because they would not look intently at the end at the end of what was fading away. What does Paul mean by at the end of what was fading away? Again, another interpretive dilemma, uh, one with many options and many different voices out there saying what this possibly means. Uh, The best option that, that I've concluded here from study is that this is speaking as to the outcome, the, the result of what the divine glory was supposed to do. Stay with me here. Uh, Moses, Dons a veil. He puts this veil over his face. What was the intended result of that divine glory? Well, I think the answer is in Exodus 33, verse 16. You don't have to turn there, but Exodus 33, 16 says this. God, speaking to Moses on the mountaintop, tells him that my glorious presence in and among the people would distinguish, is what the Hebrew said, but Paul's using the Septuagint version here, Exodus 33, 16 says it would glorify. It would glorify my people among the nations. In other words, when God's presence would go forth with the people, the intent was that it would set them apart. It would glorify his people, distinguish them among the nations. But now we see here by Moses putting a veil over his face that now the people can no longer see God's presence. They can no longer partake full scale in the outcome of what God's presence was intended to do, which was what? Their glory. It is now only at intermittent times as that they are allowed to see now the glory of God as Moses speaks to them authoritatively from the word of God. In a sense, the glory of God has faded from their view every time Moses dons the veil. Paul therefore says, we don't do that. We don't minister like Moses. And maybe it may sound like, maybe we're pointing a finger at Moses here. Moses, how dare you? 
Moses, why'd you do that? Moses, why'd you put a veil over your face? Well, verse 14 gives us the reason why Moses put the veil over his face to cover this divine glory. Verse 14 gives us the answer. It's because their minds were hardened. The intended outcome for God's people was their glory, but instead their minds were hardened and so Moses had to don a veil. A lot of interpreters would say because of the judgment that might come through the glory that would shine forth on hardened hearts. We don't know the exact reason, it could be that, but what we do know is that Moses veiled himself because of their hardened hearts. Uh, Paul, uh, excuse me, Tom was just talking about in this uh, morning in this message that the word heart there is a synonym for mind. Verse 14 says that their minds were hardened. That is their heart, their inner being, all that they were, were was hardened against God. Inwardly, in mind and heart, they were in a state of unbelief. They were in a state of unbelief. They had an inability to grasp God's word and obey his commands. We see that throughout the scripture that, that Israel is characterized as those who were a stubborn people. And because they were a stubborn people, because they had hard hearts, God's purpose for them was cut short. Their existence, for the rest of their existence, they lived as a people cut off from the presence of God. First, it began with Moses and a veil. Second, it began with a veil in the tabernacle. Third, it began with a veil in the temple. God's people were cut off because of their hard hearts. But what was true of Israel in Moses' day, Paul reveals is true of Israel in his day. We come then to the consequences. The fourth and last detail is the consequences of our boldness. First, he says that the consequences of him preaching boldly, having an unveiled ministry, is that unbelievers are veiled. Unbelievers are veiled. Verse 14, it says, For until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. As he goes forth and preaches the gospel, there are those upon whom the gospel comes and they just can't see it. They cannot behold the beauty of the Savior. And we know that this is not just for Jews, but Paul's gonna go on in chapter four, right there in verses one through six, to say this is for all unbelievers, Jew or Gentile. Whoever will not respond to the gospel, the reason why is because Satan has blinded their eyes. All unbelievers are veiled. Notice the time of their unbelief. He says in verse 14 and verse 15 that it's until this very day, Verse 15, but to this day, this is an echo back to Deuteronomy chapter 29, verses one through four, where there on the plains of Moab, uh, Moses says, quote, you have seen all the Lord's great and mighty works. Yet to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. Thus Paul is equating the Jewish unbelievers of his day with the hard-hearted, rebellious Israelites of Moses' day. Like father, like son, that as Paul went out and preached the gospel, those, um, those that, that heard and rejected were still in the loins of their ancestors, rejecting the presence of God back then and rejecting the presence of God now, seen in the face of Jesus Christ. Notice the indicator of their unbelief. 
in verses 14 and 15. It says at the reading of the old covenant, or he says in verse 15, whenever Moses is read, that the same veil lies over their hearts. And so what Paul's saying is that the indicator of their hard-heartedness, their unbelief, is that when the word of God is read, when it is taught, what do they do? That they don't turn to their Messiah and fall down on bended knees and worship him, but rather they reject him. Paul says that the same thing is true today of all unbelievers. Jesus says, when we preach the gospel, there will be some upon the seed in which it will fall on the roadside and the ravens will come and pluck it up. Those who are hard-hearted and unbelief reject the word of God, that the word of God falls on their ears as if they were deaf. deaf. And so how we respond to God's word is a clear indicator, just as it was of the Jews of Paul's day. We see the solution of their unbelief. The solution of their unbelief is the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 14, but it is only removed, right? It's, it's removed in Christ. Verse 16, but whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. I won't have you turn back, but in Exodus 34, it shows that Moses is repeating pattern the rest of his life, as it were, Every time he would go before the Lord and attend a meeting, what would he do? He would take off the veil and he would behold the glory of the Lord. Paul is saying here then that whenever, whenever a person turns to the Lord, whenever a person will turn to behold God, the Lord then removes the veil. He takes off the mask and allows them to see the glory shining forth from their face just like Moses did. In Exodus 34. So then whenever we go forth and we preach the gospel, this is our solution. This is the hope that we have that the Lord can do what we cannot do. This is the first consequence of Paul's ministry. But what happens then once a person does turn to the Lord, they turn from their sins and now behold the glory of God, we see that believers are transformed. In verses 17 through 18. Believers are transformed. First, we see that we are liberated from the tyranny of the veil in verse 17. He says, now the Lord is the spirit, and when the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Uh, the word for liberty means freedom. Freedom as compared to bondage, or excuse me, freedom as compared to slavery or bondage. In Galatians chapter three, verses 22 through 23, we see that, that all sinners are under lock and chain, that, that sin keeps a, a tight rope on us. It, it has us in cells prison, if you were. And, and standing guard at our prison cell, says Paul in verse 23, is the law. It is a custodian. It is one like a prison guard keeping watch over our cell door, not allowing anyone to escape. But when the gospel goes forth, when people turn to the Lord and the veil is removed, it is as if the spirit of God comes forth, sets the prison guard aside, bursts open sin's door, comes in, drags the unbeliever out, now giving them faith and now setting them free. You are liberated. It is, the veil has been torn away. It has been discarded. Now you see and you behold the glory of Christ. You are free from the tyranny of the veil. You are free from death. You are free from sin's domination. You are free from condemnation and the sentence of judgment, but you're also free for love. 
You're free for service. You are free for obedience. We are liberated by the work of the Spirit. But not only are we liberated, we also see that we are transformed. We are transformed into Christ's image, verse 18. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Like Moses, we behold the glory of the Lord now. The word for behold is to look intently at something, to look at something intently, closely, making an observation as if you're in a mirror. Back in ancient times, mirrors were made out of metal, you couldn't get a, a very clear reflection from that, right? You had, to, you had to stare a little harder. You had to get a little bit closer if you want to put your makeup on or, or fix your hair, right? You really had to look into that mirror. And so what Paul is saying here is you now with unveiled face are not, not just taking a, a casual glance at the glory of the Lord. No, no, you are beholding, you are gazing, you are looking intently, making careful observation at the glory of the Lord, right? We, we sit now in his presence and we seek to, to take in as much as we can. We, we look and we look and we look at Christ. And what do we see? Well, we see his glory. We are soaking in his, his rays as we look upon the face of of the Son. How do we do this, Christian? We look at him in his word. As we, as we open the word, we are gazing upon the glory of the Lord flowing, emanating from the scripture. We also see his glory. We behold his glory in his church. As we've been learning even this morning in 1 John, that as we love one another, what are we doing? We're manifesting the invisible God making him visible in this sense as we see. We are reflecting God's glory as we love each other. And what happens then when we take in more of Christ, beholding his glory through the word and through his church? Paul says we're transformed. We are being transformed. We are changed. We are renewed. We undergo, undergo a total transformation in the inner man. We are under a construction project now. The Spirit of God is transforming us to reflect the glorious image of our Savior. It's important at this moment to just notice uh, the, the tense of the Greek verbs here for behold and for transform. It shows that they're interrelated. That you can't have one without the other. In fact, as you do the first, the second happens. As you behold Christ you are being transformed. In other words, we could say it like this, as we behold the glory of Christ each and every day, the spirit of God is transforming us into his image. We become what we behold. We become what we behold. This is not an instantaneous change. It's a gradual change, as he says there at verse 17. It's from glory to glory, that the image of God that was tarnished and marred at the fall is slowly being transformed into the renewed image of Christ. And one day, when one day with unveiled face, as we just sang about this morning, 
that we will behold the Lord Jesus Christ in his glory, not looking at a mirror, but 1 John 3, 2, we will see him face to face. We will see him as he truly is. And not only will we see God's brilliant glory shining in the new heavens and the new earth, but we will also finally and perfectly bear that glory in our own heavenly bodies, forever reflecting God's glory for all eternity with an unveiled face. This is the surpassing glory of the ministry of the new covenant. This is from our Lord. As we finish, just real quick, build yourselves up. What can we take away? Build ourselves up and the hope of the new covenant realities. Continue to look at the gospel, at God's word, and build yourself in this hope and boldly go forth. Boldly go forth and proclaim the message of the gospel. That as you build yourself on that hope, it should then lead you to boldness. And then behold. Behold more and more and more of the glory of God and the face of Jesus Christ. Delight in him. Open up his words and let him shine forth his glory from the scriptures. Come here and revel in his glory amongst his church. Omega, this is the tapestry of Paul's ministry. We've just cracked the surface. He goes on for another two or three chapters to give us a whole lot more and encourage you as you go on that you can look into those. But we've seen that the Lord Jesus Christ is leading us in triumph. And we are bearing his aroma everywhere we go. And he has made us able. He has made us adequate. He has strengthened us for this ministry. And then we see that he has given us a surpassing glory in this ministry, causing us to go forth boldly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. Lord, we trust that you are a great and awesome God that has chosen to shine forth your glory to us through the person of your Son.